Hey guys, what's going on? This is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you episode four of the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. Today's episode is going to be covering a wide variety of topics. The one thing that all these topics have in common is that they're specific to the field of emergency medicine. You probably haven't seen most of these on your other shelf exams, so this is very high yield stuff. Before we dive into the content, I just have a couple thoughts that I want to share with you guys. If you're a fourth year student, then you submitted your residency applications a while ago, and you're probably planning to go on your first couple of interviews just like I am right now. This is a very stressful time for most of us, so I just wanted to remind everyone of something that is easy to forget in times like this. If you're not getting the interviews that you wanted, or if match day doesn't go your way, please, please remember that there is much more to life than medicine. Medicine does not have to define you, and there is so much more life to live outside of medicine. If you're struggling in any way, please don't be scared to reach out for help. I wish you all the best of luck with your interviews. Now, let's begin with the content. So let's start this episode off by talking about the management of bite wounds on your exam. For this topic, you need to know which wounds require suturing, which wounds require antibiotic prophylaxis, and in which circumstances do you give the rabies vaccine prophylactically. Now, I created my own approach to this topic that I used on the exam. However, I would not recommend using this in the ED when you're on your clinical rotation. Definitely don't go up to an attending and be like, hey, I heard on this podcast that you can separate bites into these two categories. No, don't do that. So I break down bite wounds into high-risk bites and low-risk bites. High-risk bites include any bites to the hands or to the feet, or any bite from a human or from a cat is also considered high-risk. Any bite that is not high-risk is therefore a low-risk bite. Pretty much every bite wound is going to get irrigated thoroughly, and the patient is going to receive a tetanus shot. High-risk bite wounds, which again includes those to the hands or feet, and those caused by humans or cats, both require antibiotic prophylaxis and should not be sutured. The reason you do not suture these bite wounds is because there's a high risk for infection, and you don't want to close the skin and leave an infection underneath the skin. Low-risk bite wounds should be sutured, but do not require antibiotic prophylaxis. So far, I've really only found one exception to this rule, at least for exam purposes. If you have a bite wound to the face, those wounds do get sutured, but also require antibiotic prophylaxis. The way I remember this exception is by thinking of Harry Potter. Nobody wants to look like Harry Potter with a scar on their forehead, for the rest of their life that everybody talks about. So, to minimize scar formation, we do suture these wounds closed. However, at the same time, nobody wants a skin infection on their face either. It's really close to the brain. Bad news. So we also give antibiotic prophylaxis. So again, high-risk bites, no sutures, and you give antibiotics. Low-risk bites, you suture without antibiotics. The exception is bite wounds to the face which require antibiotics and suturing. 
As far as rabies vaccine prophylaxis goes, on the exam, there's only a couple things you need to consider. In real life, this is different, and I would recommend you looking up the guidelines. But for the exam, just keep these couple things in mind, okay? Number one, was there any possibility the patient has been bitten by a bat? Meaning, was there a bat in the room? Were they in a cave? There doesn't even have to be bite marks. If they have exposure to a bat and feel like they might have gotten bitten, you give them the rabies vaccine. Number two, if the patient was bitten by an animal other than a bat, then you need to determine if it's possible to monitor the animal for seven to 10 days. So if it was a wild animal, chances are unless the patient brought it with them, you're not gonna be able to monitor the animal and thus you give the patient the rabies vaccine. However, if it was a domesticated animal, like let's say my neighbor's dog bit me, then you wanna monitor that animal for seven to 10 days. If the animal develops no symptoms of rabies, then you do not need to give the vaccine. Does that make sense? Sorry if that was a lot at once for you guys. This is just such a testable topic and I can pretty much guarantee it's gonna show up on any emergency medicine exam that you would take. So if you need to, feel free to rewind, get it straight in your head, and then let's move on. So while we're on the topic of bites, let's cover snake bites and spider bites, as these are very high yield topics for your examination. So let's say a patient comes in after experiencing a very painful spider bite. He has normal vitals, but appears diaphoretic and is complaining of diffuse myalgias, muscle spasms, and abdominal pain. The bite wound site doesn't look too impressive to you. So what do you think bit him? So this is a black widow spider bite. These are typically very painful and present with myalgias and muscle cramping. These typically don't need an antivenom, but one exists if the symptoms are severe enough. So in general, treatment is usually just supportive care. Let's say the next patient comes in after suffering a bite wound from an unknown animal. You look at the bite wound and you notice the area surrounding it seems pretty edematous, but other than that, it doesn't look too bad to you. And he doesn't really have any symptoms right now. However, you decide to get some blood work anyway, and what you see is a picture that looks like DIC in his blood work. What did this poor guy get bitten by? All right, so this is a bite wound from a venomous pit viper, which is a kind of snake. The venom from these snakes causes a mild coagulopathy that almost resembles a mild DIC on blood work. Usually these patients aren't really bleeding out though. Does anyone know what the treatment for these bites is called? Good. It's called CROFAB. C-R-O-F-A-B. If you're curious, you can Google what that stands for. But as far as exam purposes go, there is one thing that you need to know about this antivenom. You need to know that this antivenom comes with a high risk of acute anaphylaxis. So on your exam, if you see an anaphylactic reaction after an antivenom is given, get ready to pick epinephrine for your answer choice. Let's move on to the next type of bite wound. Let's say the patient comes in and he says that he was bit a couple days ago by something, but he doesn't know what. It didn't hurt when it happened, However, over the past couple days, the bite wound has become nastier and nastier looking. When you look at it, it looks very ulcerated with a couple areas of necrosis, and it looks unlike anything you've ever really seen before. What caused this bite wound, and how do you manage this?
So this bite wound was most likely caused by a spider called the brown recluse. Classically, these bite wounds are initially painless, but over the course of a couple days, they start looking worse and worse. They can become ulcerated, they can become necrotic, they can be surrounded by deep bruising. They just look really, really bad, way worse than the patient states they feel. And perhaps most importantly, unlike a black widow spider bite, there are no systemic symptoms. Before we change topics, I want to share with you guys the way that I keep these bite wounds straight in my mind. So for me personally, I imagine that becoming a widow in real life must be one of the most painful things that a human could experience, both initially when it first happens and for some time after it happens. So I think of black widow spider bites the same way. The initial bite is painful, and the symptoms, meaning the muscle cramps, the muscle aches, the abdominal tenderness, are also painful. As far as brown recluse spider bites go, I remember these by just thinking that reclusive people, meaning people that actively avoid others, tend to go unnoticed by others. And therefore, brown recluse spider bites tend to go unnoticed. They are initially not painful at all. And if you want a more clinically focused pearl for recluse spider bites, you should Google the mnemonic recluse. And there is a great mnemonic that you don't need to memorize for the test, but you'd probably impress some attendings with it. And as far as remembering venomous snake bites, I just recall that snakes and vampires both have fangs, and they use these fangs to drink blood. The vampires suck the blood with their fangs. However, the venomous snakes thin the blood so that the patient bleeds, and then they can drink the blood. I know that's kind of silly, and I'm kind of stretching it a little bit, but work with me, guys. All right, moving on. Let's talk about some environmental medicine. Let's say you're working at a standalone ED at a ski or a hiking resort somewhere near Denver, Colorado. You have a patient who arrived yesterday in Denver for his vacation, and he comes in after hiking up to the summit of a mountain, and he's complaining of headache, nausea, vomiting, and some swelling of his hands and feet. What's going on here? So this is something known as acute mountain sickness, also known as high altitude sickness. This occurs whenever there is a rapid change in your elevation without allowing for time to adjust. The severity of acute mountain sickness exists on a spectrum. So this vignette highlighted the mild form of acute mountain sickness. One of the mainstays of treatment of mild acute mountain sickness is acetazolamide. Also, rapid descent will improve symptoms, and you can give the patient oxygen if they need it. Now, a more severe form of acute mountain sickness is called high-altitude pulmonary edema. This occurs basically due to an exaggerated hypoxic vasoconstriction response to the lower partial pressure of oxygen at that altitude. These patients tend to present with shortness of breath and may even have some cyanosis. These patients are treated with supplemental oxygen and immediate descent. I'm not sure if the exam is going to go into this much detail, but another treatment choice for high-altitude acute pulmonary edema includes either nifedipine or sildafinil, both of which reduce pressures in the pulmonary vasculature. And lastly, let's talk about the most severe form. Let's say the patient presented with ataxia and confusion after climbing the mountain. 
what is this called? So this is high altitude cerebral edema. This leads to elevated intracranial pressures, which can eventually cause brainstem herniation and death. So the treatment here also involves immediate descent with supplemental oxygen. However, the one difference here is that you can also give these patients dexamethasone to reduce their intracranial pressure. While we're on this topic, make sure that you can recognize Cushing's reflux in any question where there is potential for an increase in intracranial pressure. Cushing's reflex is a triad of symptoms that suggest an extremely high intracranial pressure with impending brainstem herniation. This triad includes bradycardia, hypertension, and chain stokes respiration, which is a very irregular breathing pattern. There are many different scenarios where they could throw a Cushing's reflex question at you. Some examples would include high altitude cerebral edema, head trauma, pseudotumor cerebri, any kind of intracranial mass, etc. All right, moving on to a couple high yield factoids. Let's say you're at a party and the host of the party is cutting limes for your drinks. In the process of cutting the limes, your host accidentally severs her finger off with a knife. What should you do to preserve that finger? So believe it or not, this actually comes up a lot on exams. What you need to do is you need to wrap the amputated digit in a saline soaked gauze. Once you have it wrapped, you place that in a plastic bag and then place the plastic bag on ice and get that patient to the closest surgeon. Along those same lines, how do you preserve an avulsed tooth for reimplantation? So for the exam, there are two answer choices you need to be aware of. The first option is to try to re-implant that tooth into the socket that it broke out of. If that is not an option, then the correct answer is by placing it in a glass of milk. Typically in the ED, we carry solutions that are meant to preserve these teeth. It has a special name, but you're not going to get that on your exam. Let's say a homeless patient comes in and you're worried that they might have severe frostbite on their right foot. What is the first step of management with suspected frostbite? Good, so the exam will try to trick you here. The first step is actually to remove wet clothing. So wet socks, wet shoes, whatever you need. The first step is not to rewarm. Speaking of rewarming, what is the correct temperature to rewarm a frostbitten limb? So the correct rewarming temperature, which you need to know for your exam, is between 37 and 39 degrees Celsius. This is really easy to remember, guys, because it's exactly the same as the normal core body temperature. And that's about all I have for you guys. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please email me. My email is empodcastmike at gmail.com. Until next week, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.